What's up, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Joshua Perry Show. Of course, I am your host, former Buckeye captain and national champ, former NFL player and current Big Ten Network in 97.1, the fan analyst, Joshua Perry. This is the podcast where we talk sports, life, and everything else. Broadcasting on the Zedia Network, follow at Zedia Network on Twitter for big time podcasts and great content. And folks, the content has been on point as of late, so I really implore you to follow Zedia Network on Twitter. So this show is gonna be uh, unique in nature because I'm a little bit late in giving my thoughts on um, Ohio State's national championship game against Alabama, but I will give you some thoughts on that. And then we've got some fresh news with Urban heading to Jacksonville. And so I will definitely let you know what I'm thinking there what the challenges will be, what's going to translate over from the college game and overall what my expectations are of Coach Meyer as he makes that transition. And then I'll end the show off talking about something that happened a little bit over a week ago, but I I think it needs some attention. It was uh, the the storming of the Capitol and what happened there and, and some parallels to some of the content I had over the summer because I think it's important enough to talk about. So diving right into it. Ohio State obviously on the losing end of that national championship game. It was a it was a tough one to stomach. Final score of fifty-two to twenty-four. Uh, I'll start off by saying that I think that the Alabama team that Ohio State just faced might go down in history as one of the best Alabama teams ever assembled. And they've had some really good ones, but I'm not exactly sure anybody was going to actually beat that Alabama team. And you look offensively with the three Heisman Trophy candidates, one of them actually winning the trophy in Mac Jones, Najee Harris, and of course, Devontae Smith. That was a problem in and of itself. And then you add in the threat of Jalen Waddle, whether he was gonna be effective or not, just his presence on the field, I think was a challenge for Ohio State to deal with. On top of that, John Mechie, Jaleel Billingsley, just all of the offensive weapons and a an offensive line that is truly elite. And then on the defensive side of the ball, not necessarily the guys that we have come to know and love from Alabama defenses, but I think Patrick Sertan was somebody who definitely had an effect on that game it, for Ohio State when they were looking to drop back and throw the ball, and I'll kind of get into that. But overall thoughts is immediately, first and foremost, Ohio State on all fronts, offense, defense, special teams, game management, everything else, in my opinion, was outclassed. And what I mean by that is Nick Saban looked like a coach who had won national titles multiple times. And Ryan Day looked like a coach who had made his first appearance in that game. And it's not to disparage Ryan Day because his coaching track record speaks for itself. His only two losses in his career as a head coach have come to Dabo Swinney and Nick Saban, who are two of the best coaches in college football right now. Nick Saban will historically go down as the greatest college football coach of all time uh, as it stands today. But it's not an excuse for some of the things I saw. Offensively, I understand the challenges that they were up against. When you look at the fact that Justin Fields was clearly not 100% healthy, Uh, did not have that same amount of confidence, did not have that same spark he typically does. That's something to deal with. Trey Sermon getting hurt on his first carry of the game, definitely something to deal with. But Ohio State lacked creativity, lacked aggression offensively the whole night. 
And we had seen Ohio State take their chances on fourth downs. And we had seen Ohio State go for touchdowns instead of kicking field goals earlier on in the year. And it was a real wonder in my mind why that same aggression did not manifest in the national title game. And like I said, you can point to multiple factors. I think you want your quarterback to be 100% when you're going to take some of those chances. But if there's any time to take the chances, it is in the national title game because if you don't take the chances, you're not getting them back. It's not like you could take it and, and, and go and, and look forward to the next game because there is no next game. So that was an issue for me. Uh, and then schematically, the creativity or the thoughtfulness, I think, was a step behind what I really wanted to see. And one of the things I had mentioned was Ohio State's use of motion, was their use of bunch formations where they could get both Garrett Wilson and Chris Olave off the line of scrimmage at the same time and make it really hard for defenders to get hands on those guys. I didn't see that as much as I wanted to. And the, it really showed up when either one of those guys had one-on-ones with Pat Sertan because he really X'd him out of the game plan. And I said in the preview show that he was a guy who could take away half of the football field and really make the quarterback have a, uh, a half-field read. And that was what Justin Fields was doing a lot of the night, and he was feeling the pressure up front. So I think that kind of made it difficult for some of the routes to really develop and materialize. But I think they were also playing against the best defensive back, in my opinion, in college football this year, and it showed. Chris Olave, Garrett Wilson were both guys that were averaging like 100 yards receiving a game, and they each went for, you know, I think 60 or 70 yards apiece, which is way below their season average, and it had an effect on the game. And what I was looking for Ohio State to do was what Alabama did with their offense is bring those guys off the line of scrimmage, motion them around, make it difficult to play man coverage from a press position, make it difficult for the defensive secondary to handle the way that the route was going to develop. One of the things that I truly appreciate about Ryan Day is the development of the passing concepts in the route tree because he is a coordinator who will develop his concepts to a point where they build off of one another and he can hit you right at the perfect moment. And I didn't see that develop the way that it had before. On the flip side, that's absolutely what Alabama did. They stuck to their game plan. I told you what it was going to be. It was Mac Jones was going to get the ball out of his hands quick, and he was going to take play action shots deep when they were going deep. And it's literally what happened. And people were disappointed in Ohio State's use of four linebackers on the field. Why wouldn't you put more DBs out there? Because you knew that, Alabama was a great passing team and they had all this great wide receiver talent. And, 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 and. If you listen to my preview show, you will understand why Ohio State did what they did. They wanted to stop the run because it would take Alabama out of their play action game, which is how they took their deep shots. And it would force Mac Jones to sit back five, seven step drops, read coverage and have to win with his arm throwing the ball into windows where Ohio State was playing coverage so their, their wide receivers weren't as open. And they could not effectively stop the run. And, what, and, and it's not like Najee had 150, 200 yards on the ground. He had about 80 yards on the ground. But they were timely runs 
that kept Alabama on schedule, which allowed them to utilize their quick passing game, which when you're off schedule, you feel like you got to push the ball down the field a little bit more from a drop back, not necessarily a play action situation, which is not what Alabama does. And then it allowed them to establish the play action and suck the linebackers up and create big passing windows with wide receivers who are going to be able to shake coverage. And it was open all night long. And that was, it was disappointing to see because you knew that the game plan was trying to take away all of the things that would have made it harder for Alabama. And it did not materialize. But I think the most difficult thing for me to stomach was not that they, they couldn't execute that game plan because Alabama's that good of a team. It was going to be difficult. It wasn't necessarily that guys were getting beat in coverage because I said on the preview show, they were going to get beaten coverage. Alabama's guys were too good. It wasn't necessarily the fact that Ohio State couldn't get as much pressure as they wanted because I said, unless Mac Jones was in a straight five, seven step drop back scenario, the play action was going to slow down the D line and the ball coming out quick was going to allow him to avoid being pressured. So none of those things necessarily bothered me. The thing that bothered me the most is the image that stands out in Ohio state Buckeyes minds from a defensive standpoint. It's number 32 tough Borland being in coverage on number six Heisman trophy winner, Devontae Smith on a deep over route. And Ohio State fans are, are mad for the wrong reason on that. They're like, oh, why would you play man-to-man with the linebacker on Devontae Smith? It's not what they set out to do when they called the defense. That's just stupid. Nobody getting paid as much as Kerry Combs and Greg Madison and the rest of the defensive staff would ever do something so ridiculous. That's not what they did. But it also shows that Ohio State's defense maybe didn't think through all of the scenarios and didn't have all of the proper checks in place to avoid unfavorable situations such as that. And I will explain as best as I can on this show with my words. So Ohio State is a base single high coverage team, regardless of whether they have four linebackers, four defensive linemen, and uh, what would that leave in the back end? Three defensive backs, whether they have three linebackers, four defensive backs, four defensive linemen, or whether they have two linebackers in the game, with their nickel package, nickel meaning five defensive backs in a four-man rush, they are a base single high safety team. Out of single high safety, you can play basically two coverages, man-to-man, which eight-man box, single high safety in the middle of the field is your free guy. Obviously, playing man-to-man on the five wide receivers, typically a free underneath player to clean up messes there. So you got two free players, five guys in coverage, four guys rushing. or You can play a three-deep zone concept, which is the corners in the middle of the field safety have three deep zones. You have four underneath coverage areas, and you have a four-man rush. And it's, again, eight-man box, good for the run. That's what single high does. That's why people like playing it. When you're in a man-to-man team and you can drop into a single high zone, it really lets you disguise all the different things. And that's what Ohio State does. And on that play, they were not playing their man-to-man concept. It looks the same at the beginning of the play, so I can understand how people would feel like that. They were playing 
their three deep zone concept. In the three deep zone, you have two buzz flat players. So they've got, you know, the short area of the field outside the hashes near the sidelines. And then you've got two inside hook players, weak hook, strong hook player. And they drop basically around the hashes in that area. And then, like I said, three deep zones. What Alabama did is what everybody on offense does when you're playing a cover three team is you try to flood zones, whether you flood the flat with different concepts as people have seen it, where you run a short flat route, you run a, an out route, and then you run kind of the seven cut or the nine straight vertical seven cut being the flag route. And then the, the nine being the straight vertical up the field that floods zones. It makes defenders have to, to decide what they're doing, whether you do that with the running back out of the backfield, et cetera, they do the, the flat again, kind of five yards, seven yards to the flat. And then the seven cut, which is the flag route above that. It's a three deep flood concept zone beater. They'll run three people through a zone. And then the other thing that they do to flood the deep zones is four verticals. And why that works is because you have three people to guard four people deep, right? So the three deep zones, they end up covering man to man at some point when they're running four verticals, it's two people in one of the three deep zones. There has to be somebody else to cover that. And it ends up being one of the underneath zone droppers, typically the weak hook zone dropper will carry the fourth vertical up the field. And it plays like man to man in the back end of the defense when it's all said and done, because one of the corners has their vertical through their outside zone. The safety in the middle of the field has the strong vertical up that hash. And then the underneath weak hook player has to roll over the other hash, basically vertical. A lot of times it comes from a three receiver set and it bends over the top. And then the other corner is basically on nylon covering that zone back there. And there are ways to tell when it's coming. And Alabama gave it to Ohio State. And it seemed like Ohio State wasn't even checked in. So Alabama gets into a three-by-one set, three receivers to the left, offensive left, and one receiver to the offensive right. They run essentially what turns out to be four verticals. Now, they don't all just go straight vertical up the field. But as a defender, once the, the receivers are past like 10 yards, you can't tell where they're going to finish their route. So you just play it like it's four straight verticals. And the, where you have issues with that underneath player who has to take that fourth vertical is when that guy is a speed guy. We used to say when I played in that system in the league, when you have speed at number three, you either got to get on your horse or you got to check into another defense. And when you're tough Borland, there's no horse to get on because I love him to death, but athletically he's not built to cover that guy. There's not a linebacker in America who is. Not a lot of DBs in America who are built to cover Devontae Smith. And so they probably should have had a check in there. And if I was Kerry Combs and I was coordinating that defense, I know I'm giving a damn dissertation. I'm going on and on. But I need y'all to understand this. If I was Kerry Combs and I'm coordinating that defense, day one to install for Alabama, I'm saying, all right, we got our base three deep. This is one of our adjustments. When, we get in, when the offense gets into a three-by-one formation and they've got speed at number three, speed being Jalen Waddell, or Devontae Smith, John Mechie probably, and you have one of the underneath players that has to carry that is not a safety, 
you're checking out of the defense. And I don't know what they're checking to. That's not for me to decide. But I definitely know they should have never been in that. And so Alabama walks out there, trot up to the line of scrimmage. They got number six at, at the three slot, that speed at three. You've got the exact matchup you want because the weak hook defender is one of the linebackers. And tough Borland, God bless his heart, knew it was coming because you could see right from the, the snap of the ball, his eyes immediately go to number six. You can see him getting his drop. He's turning his body to roll with it, and he just doesn't have enough. He's not a fast enough player to do it. And Ohio State's defense allowed him to be in a situation to get picked on. And people are going to say, well, why would you ever do that? It's not supposed to be that scenario, right? You're not supposed to have that. And there are, there are fail-safes to avoid that. And it was really disappointing that that wasn't in the game plan. And so among other issues for Ohio State, like I said, Justin Fields not being 100%, Trey Sermon being banged up. You had some guys off of the defensive line who were not in the game plan. The, the biggest thing that stands out to me about that game is that Ohio State was effectively outcoached from start to finish, and uh, it leaves you with a bad taste in your mouth because you know that when you get to that, that part of the season, when you get to a national title game, you want to be competitive, and they just weren't. Uh, and so the question now becomes, where does Ohio State go from here? I think they're in good hands. I think they're in good shape. They got some questions to answer in terms of defense and what they want to do schematically and what they want to do in terms of technique, and that's perfectly fine. I think they can answer those questions because they'll be more experienced in the back end next year. They're going to have a huge question at quarterback, and neither one of the quarterbacks on the roster behind Justin which would be C.J. Stroud and I believe Jack Miller, have thrown a pass in college football. So that'll be a big issue. But Ryan Day is great with quarterbacks, so they'll get that situated. Ohio State's going to be fine. It's just going to be a matter now of when they're on the biggest stage, can they keep up? Because Ohio State's coaching staff, in my opinion, outclassed Clemson by far. Brent Venables looked like he never called a, a defensive game before. Ohio State had his number, had it figured out to turn around, and play Nick Saban and look like they were light years behind. I think Ryan Day is a way better coach than that. I don't necessarily think that that performance will happen again because it's going to force him to self-evaluate, and I know he's an introspective guy, and he'll have that figured out. But again, extremely disappointing to have that taste in your mouth going into the offseason. I want to shift gears and talk about the big news of the week, and that is Urban Meyer officially becoming an NFL head coach for the Jacksonville Jaguars. We had speculated in sports media about this happening. It seems like it's been in the works for about a month or so. And now we finally get here. The deal is done. Urban is heading to Jacksonville. What had held Urban up and eventually what tipped the scales for him is there is a belief that Urban wanted to update facilities. So he had to get Jaguars ownership on board with that. And there was an idea that Urban wanted to have a coaching salary pool that would be able to attract the best coaching talent there is to offer. And Urban's going to be dangerous with that at his disposal. He's going to have the facilities the way he needs it to be. He's going to have his coaching staff the way he needs it to be. He's going to have the first pick in the draft, and he'll have his selection at quarterback. And they've got a, a bunch of draft capital and a ton of cap space. I think this is a favorable situation for Urban Meyer. Now, the questions that 
linger about him in the NFL is number one, will he be able to handle players? And number two, will he be able to manage his stress levels and his expectations? Let's dive into that. Urban Meyer had a method at Ohio State of preparing players, and it was largely break them down to build them back up. He would have Mickey Marotti beat the piss out of us in the weight room. He would have us under duress constantly as young players to, to break our guard down, to build a group identity, and then to build us back up into champions. And when you get to the league, there's not a lot of breaking down that you're going to do with these guys. Some of them make too much money. All of them are too good to have to go through that scenario of being broken down. There is a way to be a demanding coach, and there is a way to, uh, to create high expectations and a high standard in the NFL. number of coaches have done it. Players like tough coaches. Players like coaches that have high standards. Players don't like being talked to like their kids. Players don't like being broken down when they're in the NFL. And so Urban's going to have to adapt his coaching style to reflect a certain toughness and a certain level of expectation while also maintaining the, the power structure that exists between coaches and players in the NFL. And I believe the only way to do that is to come in and earn their trust by showing that he is knowledgeable and by producing results. And that's something that happens over time. And I think that's how the break them down thing you know, really works is it accelerates the time aspect of it. He can't do that. So it's going to take a little bit of time, but I think all the pieces are in place. The other thing that I talked about is the expectations. And I think this one's big because this is the, the sustainability aspect for Coach Meyer. Coach Meyer is a high stress person. He's a high performance person and it leads to a lot of stress in his life to the point where he had that cyst on his brain that was it would react to the stress that existed in his life and it forced him to take a step away from coaching and now he's back and it's a different environment in the nfl because there's a true off season that exists where he can get out of town he can get away he doesn't have to chase guys to class there's no recruiting trail you can cut these guys if you feel like they're a, a cancer in the locker room whatever the case is you pick and choose what you you want to deal with when you're an nfl head coach and so from that regard, you can manage your stress levels. But then there is the results aspect that produces stress and anxiety. And Urban Meyer always talked about the fact that in Columbus, losing games is unacceptable. In Columbus, not winning a Big Ten championship is unacceptable. In Columbus, not making it to the playoff is unacceptable. And to do that, you have to be perfect. You, a lot of times to be Big Ten champs, you have to be undefeated especially to make it to the playoffs. A lot of times you have to be undefeated, maybe one loss. And that's a black guy and a blemish and it's hard to deal with in the NFL. You can call six losses a successful year because it puts you in position to get into the playoffs. It really does. And that's a paradigm shift for him because six losses in college football means your job is on the line, especially in a place like Columbus. And so he's going to have to, for his own sake and his own sanity, have that paradigm shift in his mind because players in the locker room understand nobody likes losing, but you understand that everything's still in front of you. There can't be a, a, a feeling of fatalism for urban when you lose a game. And now what do we do? There's something wrong. You know, we're going the wrong direction. No, 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 no. Coach up off the tape, get these guys, right. Let them know what's ahead of them. Let them know that it's not acceptable to lose, but it's not the end of the world either and keep it pushing. And from what I've seen of him, 
in his new behavior in retirement, I think that he can take that step. It's going to be difficult, but I think that he can do it. Now, for me, what's exciting is going to be the draft and what he does at the quarterback position. Uh, I'm of the belief that he goes with Trevor Lawrence. And I've had conversations with Urban about both Justin Fields and Trevor Lawrence, and he likes both quarterbacks a lot. The way I've heard him talk about Trevor um, is different. He, he's said that Trevor's potentially the best college football quarterback he's ever seen. The stats would back it up. The results would back it up. Trevor's a winner. Justin's a winner too. But I, I really do think that he goes for Trevor Lawrence. And now this is what we get to see is Urban Meyer adapting to the NFL game. And I think we saw that evolution while he was coaching at Ohio State. You had Braxton Miller, who obviously one of the great athletes with the ball in his hand. He had the ability to hit on some deep shots. Wasn't an elite passer. I think he's a better passer than people give him for. And then you transition into JT Barrett, who could really manage the game for you in terms of throwing the ball. He wasn't going to be like a huge deep threat kind of guy, but he was going to make the smart pass and he was going to hit the open guy. And then he was going to get you the yards. And it wasn't the same way Braxton did. It was almost felt like a fullback at times, but he was going to get it to you. And then you had Cardell Jones, who was literally a fullback. He was going to lower his shoulder, was not necessarily elusive, but was definitely a good runner and had the big NFL arm, deep shots all across the board. Um, and then you had Dwayne Haskins, who was a true NFL pocket passer. He hit every pass on the field, did not matter what it was. And we watched that evolution. We watched the self-awareness of Urban to understand what the offense had to do to suit the quarterbacks that were playing. And even making a coordinator change and bringing Ryan Day in when he knew that his offense was going to be more of a Joey Burrow or a Dwayne Haskins offense and not necessarily a Braxton Miller, JT Barrett type of offense. And so I'm, I'm, I'm excited to watch that evolution of how he puts the staff together and how he decides to use his offense because Trevor Lawrence is a guy who ran out of the spread in college. He's a guy who, who we know is a good runner, but he will be a, a great NFL quarterback because the pocket presence, the awareness, the build, the arm, the everything, he has it all. And I'm, I'm excited to watch how that goes. On the flip side, I'm very curious to see what the defense looks like. And again, the self-awareness for Urban is one of the things I think kept him great. In 2013, we had a defense that was ass. We sucked. We were terrible. It was the reason why we couldn't win the Big Ten Championship in the Orange Bullet. It, that defense literally held us back. And Urban had the awareness to encourage the defensive coordinator to look at other opportunities. He ended up becoming a head coach at James Madison and brought in Chris Ash to bring in a, a completely different defensive scheme that suited our skill set and our players, the personnel, better. Right. So Urban's a guy who is not a this is my system and he'll fit a square peg into a round hole. He's a guy who says it's not the player's fault if the system's bad. It's the system putting the players in a bad position. He doesn't like doing that. And so I'm, I'm curious to see what def defensive coordinator he brings in, what system he likes to run. But one thing I do know is the system will fit the personnel and it will always fit the personnel because he has the awareness to understand that it's not the player's fault if the system is bad. I'm excited about this. I think Urban becomes a, a very good NFL head coach. Might take a little while to get the deal off the ground, but it's going to happen, and I'm excited about it. Really looking forward to seeing that. I'm, I'm switching gears um, to something completely different 
than sports right now. This has nothing to do with college football. It has nothing to do with NFL. It has everything to do with what we've seen, not just lately, but it connects back to things I talked about on this show over the summer. So we saw the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. And it was a, uh, a shit stain, honestly, on American history that a group of people would gather at the Capitol to essentially violently riot and contest results of an election where it has been proven time and time again that there was no wrongdoing, there was no election voter fraud, none of that. It's been proven. And these people still felt the need to show up. And they threatened the lives of members of Congress, which was bad. And, and information is now coming out that they may have had assistance from sitting members of Congress, which is absolutely egregious. And everybody who is responsible for any part of it needs to be held accountable. Um, they threatened the lives of Capitol Police, which I'll get into why that is absolutely mind-boggling to me. And they, they threatened the lives of other people who gathered there to the point where people died. That was a day where people were injured, blood was shed, and life was lost. And all summer long, I had to sit back and hear bad faith arguments about the BLM protests and riots and destruction of property and violence and injuries and all kinds of different things. And the, uh, the, the reason that the arguments were bad faith was because people really didn't give a damn clearly about rioting and violence and destruction of property. People also showed that they don't really give a damn, the same people, that they don't give a damn about Blue Lives Matter, about police and respecting authority and following commands. When you're commanded to do something by a police officer, you're supposed to comply. They didn't give a damn about compliance. And that's what makes them bad faith arguments. And I'll go as far as to say that people who made those bad faith arguments are not just hypocrites because they went out and did the same thing, or they didn't do the same thing, but they turned a blind eye to, to similar things that happened. And the big difference being that these folks were largely white supremacists who were mad about an election result that is certified and is known to be bona fide, and not the fact that there are folks that are a part of their in-group that are literally being killed and nobody's being held accountable for it. These people are not hypocrites. These people simply do not like black folks. And I will stand by that statement 100%. Anybody who made those bad faith arguments did not make them because they felt like the destruction of property was so egregious or they felt like the, the civil unrest was uh, dividing this nation. People didn't care about that. Those were talking points. People were mad because of the people that were doing the protesting and the people that were doing the eventual destruction of property over the summer. They were mad that it was black people. So I'll start you off with that. The next thing I'll follow up on is that we talked about it. It's, and, and I'm, I'm gonna be transparent on this one too, because it, it's really weird watching um, folks who supported what went on this summer now all of a sudden you know, they were, a lot of them were F the police and all cops are bad. All of a sudden now talking about 
how uh, it's bad the way that the Capitol Police were treated. And I've always been somebody who is anti-police brutality, but respects police officers, right? And so I'm, I'm coming from this, from the standpoint of, I never like seeing police officers being threatened. I don't like seeing them being disrespected, but I also doesn't, I also don't think that that gives them a license to kill anybody, right? So that's my standpoint. It's, uh, it's, it's just wild seeing that and seeing how now these folks are willing to turn a blind eye or give a, uh, a soft condemnation, but then hit you with the butt. People are mad because their voices weren't heard or people are mad because they feel like there's something structurally wrong with what's going on here. And it's really, really interesting hearing that because for years and years, black folks have been telling you that their voices haven't been heard and that's why they turn to, um, to marching in the streets and then eventually why some of the organizers turn to um, bashing people's windows in is if you're not gonna hear me, I'm going to uh, throw my tantrum and I'm gonna destroy your things and then eventually you'll listen. And I, I literally saw it on, on Fox News and I've seen it from Republican talking heads. It's, it's the wildest thing that um, it's the, we don't, we don't condone it, but we understand why it's happening, but they, they couldn't make that same connection, that same understanding when it was black people. Very, very interesting there. Um, but to see the, the outspoken Blue Lives Matter uh, contingent who were now very, quiet about what happened is absolutely amazing because it, it it's it's just it's fraudulent it's bad it's it is absolutely egregious uh to have to be chastised and talked down to all summer long just to turn around and see none of them really speak up and say anything and i'm not talking about blue checkmark twitter because people will say oh i saw a lot of people i'm not talking about that i'm talking about the same people who who camped out in my mentions all summer long I'm talking about the same people who are loud as hell on the timeline who are just quiet i can't see them they're our neighbors there are people that i go to the grocery store with and there are people who live down the street from me and there are people who I, I go into the same office and go to work with at uh you know some of my jobs it's it's those same people who are now definitely silent and it's really showing their true colors uh finally i'll end it off with this because it's taking a really negative tone but i really got to get this off of my chest this is not uh, something that is an aberration. People are saying this is not the America I know. No, it is. It is. Y'all need to stop saying that because it absolutely is. There is a history of this type of acting out by white folks in America. It's 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 happened for years. It will continue to happen until people are held accountable for it, and until um, honestly, until well-meaning white people say enough is enough, and they start chastising their hillbilly backwards ass white friends. But, and, and it's, it's unfair probably for me to say hillbillies because I don't live by hillbillies, but some of these people are my neighbors. Um, white terror has caused irreparable damage to a lot of American communities, a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of non-white communities, but specifically the black community. Obviously, uh, slavery was a form of American terror against black people. And we see that there are still remnants of the effects of that to this day, whether people want to believe it or not. The formation of uh, 
of the police force as a way to police black people and protect white people in the reconstruction south and really north post-civil war in america is wild and i would implore people to look that up because there were things the black codes that existed uh things such as curfews uh, if you're not employed as a black person you could be arrested all these different things that re-enslaved black people and served to protect the not just the safety but financial interests as well of white folks um that has caused irreparable damage and uh wreak havoc and terror on black americans because the police force has been and at times still continues to be weaponized against black people and again it's not to say that all police are bad it's to say that it's to say that bad behavior by police is baked into the fabric of what the police force was constructed as not necessarily what it is today but its construction can definitely be pointed to that you have the burning of black wall street in tulsa oklahoma greenwood i believe is a suburb where black businesses were booming there were professionals dentists doctors lawyers there there were entertainers they were real estate agents insurance agents they were pastors there were store owners accountants everything it's a mecca of black business and it was burned to the ground because of white rage against black people in that city and millions upon millions upon millions of dollars worth of wealth and value in business and real estate was destroyed and because white banks would not bank with black people at that time white insurance companies would not insure black businesses and homes at that time that value was never recuperated that was an act of white rage and aggression against black people that ended up in the destruction of property the loss of wealth and the loss of life people don't know this um then you have the kkk and white supremacist terror that has long lived in this nation and the parallel i'm going to draw there is the kkk exists nowadays these people just ain't wearing hoods and the reason they were wearing hoods back when they were doing it is because people who are members of the kkk weren't just hillbilly farmers they were doctors lawyers real estate agents accountants they were people who were in business there were people who had education and reputations and they put the hood on and as we're seeing unfolding from this insurrection at the capitol you have folks who are real estate agents business owners doctors lawyers off duty police officers who showed up to cause terror and now they're just being held accountable for it and that is my parallel there and so again it's it's just it's really interesting to watch because all of these things have existed for a long time in this nation and they have hurt people for a long time in this nation and the bad behavior many times went unpunished nobody was held accountable to it and what i hope for our nation is that the folks who participated in that bloody day at the US Capitol will be held accountable for their actions because they 100% deserve to be and it will be the first step in eradicating 
this brand of white supremacy that exists today. Final thing I'll say on that um, is this. I truly do not believe that there is a cure to white supremacy and racism in the United States or across the world until well-meaning white folks make a decision that battling racism is important to them. It's a priority for them. Here's why. Is you could be a white person that has not a racist bone in their body, as I put this in air quotes, that does not see color, as I put that in air quotes, and you go about your day being respectful toward people of other races, you still benefit from white supremacy while not being an active perpetrator of white supremacy. You benefit every time a Jamal has their resume thrown out of the stack because his name is too black. Think about that. Like that, that is why it will always exist is because people who don't participate in it can still benefit from it. And until those people make it a priority, until they're moved enough to say that I am not going to, to, to be a part of this as a beneficiary, even though I don't partake in the actions daily, nothing will change. And this isn't just for racism. This is until men decide that it's, it's not okay that they get paid more to do the same job than women, that it's not okay that there are good old boys clubs and spaces that are devoted either by law or, or just because that's how it's always been just to women and they start including women more and they start respecting women's rights and they understand that like, for example, the fact that women have to pay for tampons even though that's a bodily function that exists for everybody, like that's an issue. And it robs them of the ability to build wealth, even though, you know, it might not seem like a lot of money. First off, tampons are expensive. I bought them for my fiance a number of times. Like, I couldn't imagine having to do that all the time. But like, it's even something as benign as that until we realize that maybe that should be a right for them and not something that has to be an expense and a burden on them, that this world will change, right? So until well-meaning men decide that sexism doesn't belong in society, it's not going to work. Until well-meaning cisgendered heterosexual people decide that it's not okay to discriminate against homosexual people. And, and, and it's not just deciding that it's not okay, but actively combating these things, nothing in this world will change. We are, are guilty, and I'm, I'm guilty myself. I try to be conscious of it, but we are guilty of being beneficiaries of structures that exist without partaking in them. And until we can decide that it is important enough for us to make it our duty to fight these things, not a damn thing will change. And I'm going to leave it on that. Uh, I appreciate everybody for listening. I know it's, it, this is like the most negative show I've done. And I'm sorry. Like, I've, it is what it is. Yeah, I had to talk about the Ohio State game. It's pretty negative. I don't apologize for talking about the insurrection that took place at the Capitol. I really don't because people need to hear about it. And it's probably going to rub some people the wrong way. It's going to ruffle feathers. It's absolutely a negative tone. But it's something that needed to be said because it's, it's important to understand how we're at this place right now. History repeats itself. And it, it's, that's exactly what it's doing. And it doesn't necessarily mirror exactly. It doesn't manifest the exact way it did in the past. But there are a lot of parallels you can draw. And until we decide 
that enough is enough on these things is just going to continue to happen. And I felt the need to say that. I appreciate you all tuning in to the Joshua Perry Show. I got to shout out my guy, Andrew Zolden, who's done a great job with this show and just allowing this platform to do what it's doing right now. Uh, very fantastic. Like I said earlier, follow at ZDN Network on Twitter. You can check out all the great stuff going on. I know the Browns podcast on this network is amazing. And the Browns, they got their playoff matchup coming up. So I know you're going to want to listen to that uh, just to see what they have to say and get a preview for that game. Drive the Lane podcast, one of my favorites as well. That's with Joey Lane and Andrew Zolden running that one. But they do a great job on the interviews. They always have fun content on there. So make sure you check it out. I am Joshua Perry, and this is The Joshua Perry Show.